Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Dr. Ross Grant. It is a pleasure and a privilege uh, to stand on a Sabbath morning and be able to talk to God's people. And uh, I just wonder whether you'd mind if we bowed our heads first before I get into the sermon. Father in heaven, Lord, we just pray, Lord, for the rain of blessing on this church. We pray for your Holy Spirit to open our hearts and our minds, and especially to be through speaking through the speaker this morning, so that, Father, we might be uplifted, so that we will learn something today. We will be impressed to be able to take away something that will keep us closer to you in Christ's name. Amen. You know, this is one of my uh, my favourite pictures. And uh, let me see this point. It doesn't actually point on there, which is sad. Okay. It's terrific when you have a look at this is Michelangelo's creation of Adam. And you can see Adam sort of laconically sort of lifting himself up to God to connect. But Michelangelo has depicted God as reaching out to man. And not only that, but he reaches out to man, and if you have a look at the larger sort of penumbra around what uh, you see his depiction of God is, a lot of people have commented that it actually looks like a brain. And you notice where God is pointing out of. He has him pointing out of where? The front part of the brain, the frontal lobe, doesn't he? Connecting with God is an extremely important topic uh, for all of us. And in fact, if we have a look at the psalm, Psalm 46, we have God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. And if we go further down to verse 10, it says, Be still and know that I am God. One of the key things with connecting with God is God asks us to be still and know that I am God. There's some movements around at the moment which actually ask us to be still and feel that I am God. Is that true? And in fact, it concerns me because at no point does God actually... Now, feelings are important. We need to love God with all our heart, mind and soul. But never without the mind. God is always dealing with us through this part of the brain. We're going to talk about that and look at it a little bit further. But it is the brain is how we know. Be still and know that I am God. Yes, the feelings will come, the feelings of love and appreciation and admiration, but if you don't know who God is, just feeling who God is, you could be feeling anything. Be still and know that I am God. So, of course, we need the brain in order to have that reason. Let's do a couple of things about the brain. And this is an area uh, of interest of mine. In fact, it's a a significant area both in uh, teaching as well as in research is actually keeping the brain healthy. But a couple of things with the brain. That's not what I meant to do. You know, we know a couple of things. The brain is about 2% of the body weight, but it takes up 20% of the oxygen. Now, what that means is, is that per gram or per weight, the brain is the most active organ in the body. And that's even compared to muscles. It actually uses more energy per weight than, uh, than the muscles. The brain's about 73% water when you have a look at it on its own. If you take all the water out of it, you're left with 60% fat. Uh, Now, my brother said to me at one point, he says, does that mean that I'm a fathead? And I said, well, I guess so. 
That's my brother, you have to know him. But anyway, 60% of that fat. Now, I'm just going to throw a little bit of plug in here as far as health concerned. Does anybody know what the highest concentration of fat in the membrane is? I know this is not a lecture. Yeah, look, it could be one. Um, I noticed there was a fairly relaxed atmosphere here, so I feel comfortable. But look, it is actually the omega-3 DHA. So you know how you have the omega-3s, EPA, DHA, or ALA, EPA, DHA? So those essential fatty acids, omega-3, DHA is actually the highest concentration in there, and there's some good reasons for it. We don't have time to go into it. Got about the consistency of silk and tofu. Uh, for those of you that enjoy that, you can think of yourself as that's what the brain is like. When you're awake, the brain produces enough energy to power a small light bulb. Now, that's pretty incredible, and some will argue that not everybody generates quite that much power. But the point is that you've got this brain doing absolutely genius stuff. It enables us to think, talk, coordinate all of those necessary physiological functions to keep the body functioning, and yet it's using a very small amount of power. What a genius to put this together. Absolute genius. If you have a look, we've got about uh, 100,000 chemical reactions, according to one estimate anyway, that takes place in your brain every second. 100,000 chemical reactions. I mean, some of these are happening incredibly fast. Well, of course, they have to happen incredibly fast for that. But the way we're put together is beyond what you can... Well, beyond even what we conceive. And I know we've got some very educated people in the audience. But you generate between 50 and 70,000 thoughts a day. You know, I mean, the brain is extremely active. And we still don't understand it. In fact, uh, I was at a uh, doing a bit of a panel uh, last night, and one of the uh, one of the other panel members was making the comment about some of the relationship between uh, science, what we understand about empirical science, and actually the need for the metaphysical. You know, the need for something external to just this physical. And he was getting the audience to move their finger, and then ask them how it was that they moved their finger. Well, of course, we know we've moved that by the brain. How was the thought generated? Well, the thought was generated actually in a way which seems to be outside. We know the mechanics of the thought were generated and came out as the finger movement. But there is something about mind, which I can tell you as a neuroscientist, that we still don't understand, and it puzzles everybody. What actually is the mind? But let's have a look at a couple of things the way we know. We know how the brain is organised. At the back here, we've got the occipital lobe, um, and then if we go a little bit further, so this is where we actually project through from the front part of the brain through to the back part of the brain so that we can interpret images that we're getting through the, the eye and through the, uh, the optic nerve. Temporal lobe, this is the one sitting at the side here. Memory, understanding, language, this is where all this happens. Parietal lobe, you've got perception, making sense of the world. You can do your, uh, your arithmetic, your maths there. Sensory cortex, so this is sitting up in the middle here, and this is, where you can, this is where your projections are when you touch things. They project through the spinal cord and then up through the sensory cortex. And then you've got the motor cortex. This is the one which allows you to move and make sense of, of uh, where your position is. There's a number of things that go on behind that. And then you've got this big, large pink section, which I've shown there, and this is what we call the frontal lobe. Now, if you have a look at, uh, you know, rabbits and monkeys and rats and all of that, they've got all of these elements. But the one that they don't have anywhere near as big is this frontal lobe, this prefrontal cortex. So what does the prefrontal cortex do? It's actually the part that we do the thinking with. So it's our thinking and reasoning. We weigh things up, the prefrontal cortex. This is where we do our planning. This is where we have our emotional control. You know, when somebody does something to you and you don't quite like it, 
And whether or not you respond purely emotionally or whether or not you have more of a guarded approach or, or hopefully more mature or, or uh, uh, rational approach. Moral decision-making is all tied up here. And what do we mean by that? It means that we reference our response to what is a foundational standard. In other words, we've got standards of right and wrong. Does your dog have a sense of right and wrong? Said no. Yep, some people say yes. Does your dog know when he's done something wrong? You, you've got a, you know, the law in the house is you're not allowed to get on that sofa. And then, of course, you come in, you get him up, and he's, ooh, he's sheepish, jumps down, looking very guilty. So he's got a sense of right and wrong. But what's that in reference to? Does he actually think being on the couch is actually morally wrong? No, he just thinks you're his reference point. And he's going, whew, the big boss said no, and I'm here, so I'm in trouble. But he doesn't actually have a sense of what's right and wrong. Whereas, doesn't matter what culture you're in, there is always a sense of what is right and wrong. And if you have a look at least the last six of the commandments, they're all based around those. Interpretations, there's some you know, flexibility, but at the basic level, they're all essentially the same. We have a sense of morality. And it's the frontal cortex that enables us to discern and act on the basis of what our morality is. So frontal cortex is extremely important. And, of course, as I've mentioned there, it weighs up the consequences of one's actions. So it's an extremely important part of the brain, and what's interesting is that when we're developing, we actually develop as young people. Young people develop, that's a five-year-old up there on the far left, and blue is more mature. Okay, So as we move from a five-year-old down through a 20-year-old, you can see that the brain is actually maturing from the back through to the front. Can you see? And the last bit that actually matures, and it's a shame I can't point to this, but it's just over there. Uh, the front part, that prefrontal cortex, is the last bit that wires up. Now, the important thing that I want to sort of bring out here, we want young people to think in a more mature, balanced, less emotional fashion. Is that true? Because when a child is a child, the reason why a baby just screams, well, it can't talk, so it hasn't yet wired much up there, but it's just giving you a sense of its emotions. And you're trying, and that's a lot of what parenting does. I don't have children, so that's why I'm an expert. Um, <laughs> it seems that we're, we're, we're trying to sort of educate that child how to respond in a mature way. In other words, we're trying to get them to use the prefrontal cortex to modulate that behavior which just wants to scream or just wants to lash out or just wants to grab things. Does that make sense? Now, there's two really important times in a child's life, and I throw this out there just for a little bit of extra education. There's no exam. Um, you've got what we call the synaptic explosions. So the little brains are developing. First one is in those first couple of years after a child is born. And there's what we call the synaptic explosion. They're really, the, the brain is developing and it's wiring, it's making all the connections because it's trying to, to, to speak, it's trying to walk, it's trying to interpret the environment around it, it's trying to understand you, what food eat, tastes like, all the rest of it. That's that first synaptic explosion. Then there's a little bit of a lag period, and then it picks up again around about adolescence. Early adolescence, finishing probably around about the mid-twenties. Some argue that men actually take up to about 30, and I'm not being facetious there, it's actually true. So, but the second part is after we develop those secondary sex characteristics, so the adolescent brain is now having to deal with, yes, it can walk, talk, think, see, etc., but now it's having to deal with those feelings that are coming from the secondary sex characteristics and how those hormones actually start making it feel. It's going, ooh, what does that mean? 
The reason why I mention that is that if you want a brain to develop well, you need to make sure that the connections that it's making, particularly through to the prefrontal cortex, and in the case of the adolescent, they're wiring the hindbrain, which is essentially emotional, through to the prefrontal cortex, which is your thinking brain. And you want to make sure that you give every opportunity for that thinking brain to wire up effectively. If you don't, then there are deficits in terms of emotional control. Does that make sense? Well, we're going to have a look at a little bit of that later on, and it's a very close connection with uh, our link with God. Okay, so what happens if the prefrontal cortex doesn't work well? Does anybody know who Phineas Gage is? Has anybody heard of Phineas Gage? We've got some, we've got a few, and I would expect anybody who's done first-year psychology would know Phineas Gage. There's Phineas, 1848. This is, a, uh, this is the, the cutting that he was working on. He was on one of the gangs, in fact, he was the foreman, or one of the foremans, for when they would, uh, you can see through that particular uh, pass that the, the train needed to go through, they had to clear a lot of rock. And back in the 1840s, like even now, they use explosives, and it was using gunpowder, and so one group would drill a hole down. His job, as the, the senior uh, person on the foreman, would do, do the dangerous bit. He'd come in, put down the, uh, the, the gunpowder, uh, he would then put a little bit, put a fuse in it, put a little bit of sand, and then tamp it down with the iron bar that you see him hanging on to. This particular day, he was, they drilled a hole, he'd put down the gunpowder, he'd been distracted by his men. So you can see it's on his left, he'd looked over his right shoulder, he's tamping it down, he forgot to pour in the sand, kept tamping, it sparked on the edge of the, uh, the rock and exploded. And that bar went up through his, uh, up through the cheekbone and through the top of his head. And you can see there that uh, it's gone up through which part of the brain? Frontal lobe, the prefrontal cortex. And in fact, one of the physicians that, would, uh, that had attended this, uh, this accident said that when they removed the, the bar, he said about a cup of brain fell out. So he lost a significant amount of his prefrontal cortex. Now, why this particular fellow is so famous is that he survived. As you can see, it's all healed up. He's lost his eye too, of course, but he, uh, he survived. And in fact, he never lost consciousness even through this. He was able to talk. He was able to respond. And, uh, you know, seemed to be in every other way normal. Listen to what uh, Dr. Harlow, who gave one of the first accounts of some of the changes in this particular gentleman, Phineas Gage's behaviour following the accident. This would be about 18 months afterwards. He says, and now this is uh, back in uh, sort of 19th century English, but uh, I'll read it anyway. He says, The equilibrium or balance, so to speak, between his intellectual faculties and his animal propensity. So what are we talking about? Intellectual capacity is here. Animal propensity is hindbrain. Have we done anything to the hindbrain? Nothing. So his emotions are all intact. But how does he gauge with this intellectually? So this balance between the intellectual faculties and animal propensities seems to have been destroyed. He is fitful, irreverent, indulging at times in the grossest profanity, which, interestingly, he makes the comedy, says, which was not previously his custom. Manifesting but little deference for his fellows, sounds like a petulant child, doesn't he? Doesn't really care about anybody else. Manifesting little deference for his fellows, impatient of restraint or advice when it conflicts with his desires at times pertinaciously obstinate, yet capricious. That's just meaning that he changes his mind all the time. He can't 
stick to one thing. Capricious and vacillating, doesn't know really what to do. Devising many plans of future operations which are no sooner arranged than they are abandoned in turn for others appearing more feasible. In other words, he's planning and then he lets it go. He's, he can't hang on to it. A child in his intellectual capacity and manifestations, he has the animal passions of a strong man. Intellectual capacity of a child, animal passions of a strong man. Previous to his injury, although untrained in the schools, he possessed a well-balanced mind and was looked upon by those who knew him as a shrewd, smart businessman, very energetic and persistent in executing all his plans of operation. In this regard, his mind has radically changed so decidedly that his friends and acquaintances said he was no longer Gage. Is that making sense? So where was his a lot of those elements that we would consider part of the personality. Yes, the emotions come through, but the character is actually a lot of control through the prefrontal cortex, correct? And he's lost it. I had a young lady, I have given this sermon once before, and I had a young lady come up to me afterwards and she said, so he's now profane and he's, you know, not, um, doesn't seem to be very irreverent, so in terms of his, his uh, morality, his link with God is... is uh, you know, God is going to judge him. Will he judge him before, on his behavior, before he had the accident or after? I'd love to put this out for, for but we're not a class. Um, now, my response to her was that I believed that he would be judged on what he was beforehand because he now has lost the prefrontal cortex, so he doesn't have control. So we can see what the effect is. The only thing is that, of course, effectively, if he had died, it would be the same thing. God is judging us on what we have available, and this is his. And any one of us, and I, the reason why I mention that is because another way of losing prefrontal cortex activity is through the development of the neurodegenerative diseases. When you've got people with advanced, uh, um, some of the degenerative, frontotemporal dementia particularly, but you can have Alzheimer's, etc., these will do the same thing and essentially take away the character of the person, as some of you will have experienced. So let's come back to this anyway. The consequences of damaging the prefrontal cortex, this frontal lobe, unable to regulate their body, sorry, their behaviour, so they focus on themselves, their immediate reward, they behave like children, impairing the ability to uh, reason and discriminate, impairs moral sensibilities and the ability to connect with God. Is that true? It's obviously affected Gage's ability to connect with God. If the prefrontal cortex is not operating, are we able to connect with God effectively? In fact, we can't. Be still and know that I am God. God is an intellectual being. Yes, we know that God is spirit. But God is intellectual. He always engages with us in an intellectual knowing way. If we don't have the prefrontal cortex, we won't be able to engage with God. This is just a few texts. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace. What? Whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. If you don't know God, how can you trust him? If you've just come, kind of got a vague emotional kind of connection with something metaphysical, that's not going to keep you in perfect peace. That will give you a reasonable feeling probably at some point in time, but it's not going to give you the perfect peace that God is promising. I thank God through Jesus Christ, this is Paul, uh, Jesus Christ our Lord, so with my mind I myself serve the Lord of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Isn't that exactly what Gage was doing? With my mind I serve the law of God. Because that's where our moral decision-making is. That's where we can control. Our emotions are there, we know. And we've got good emotions. They should be there. But they are also should be under the control of the mind. 
Let this mind be in you, Paul says also. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. So the thinking mind is essential for our connection with God. If the mind, particularly the front part of the brain, those frontal lobes, if that's so important for our connection with God, my question is, do you think that there might be some strategies that are being put forward to reduce the activity of the prefrontal cortex and the engagement or our capacity to be able to engage with God? You know, What things are going to reduce the, our active performance? Now, look, a number of these things, and I really appreciated the... Uh, uh, the um, short session there with Ernie this morning and uh, Ernie was able to let us know that in terms of the background of his life, and is Ernie still here? Yep. Okay, down the back. Yes. Um, And, you know, Ernie was saying, you know, he was doing drugs and he was, uh, um, you know, taking alcohol and was fairly profligate and those sort of things, but was not connecting with God at all. And it's not surprising. We're going to go through some of these, and you'll see why it can be very difficult, even within the community that that surrounds us. And what I'm going to give you is not opinions of myself. I'm actually putting up publications from reference journal articles which I've just pulled out on these topics. So we'll just see what science is actually telling us about how this sort of thing operates. But the interesting thing was that, by God's grace, Ernie was able to be contacted further down the track just through a couple of icons that were coming through with his engagement with, uh, with the computer at the time. But the community struggles with this, and this is the reasons why we've been given a lot of advice to avoid many of these things. So alcohol, let's have a look. This is from uh, Abernathy, International uh, Reviews in in Neurobiology, 2010. Uh, uh, Acute alcohol consumption causes deficits in executive function. That's up here. Long-term use of alcohol appeared more damaging to the executive function than cocaine. That's a surprise to many people, that it can be more damaging in that capacity. This is his comments. The frontal lobes especially are vulnerable to volume loss with chronic alcohol exposure. So again, this is Abernathy talking. Even low-dose alcohol intakes reduce prefrontal cortex neuronal activity. I mean, we all know, if any of us have have sort of been in that case where you're standing at the bar and have a couple of drinks and, and of course, the person next to you looks a whole lot more attractive than they did before you had the drink. (laughs) You know, sadly, it's true. Now, you put that to be later on at night and we'll have a look at sleep a little bit later on. And sleep is another one which actually helps to shut down the prefrontal cortex. And now you're tired and you're having alcohol. Is it any wonder that some pretty tragic decisions get made in that context? Chronic alcohol use showed loss of prefrontal cortex function similar to patients with physical brain damage. As I pointed out, that's Abernathy's words, not mine, in that review. Fairly clear and is not much of a problem for most of us. This is one, uh, you know, the, the uh, discussion about marijuana and legalising it, and of course we know that there are countries in the world where this is okay, certainly states within the US which have allowed this, places like Colorado, etc. Certainly arguments within Australia. This is uh, recent, this is 2016, so it's just been published. Uh, this is Wesley in Psychopharmacology, makes the comment that abnormal neural processing of emotional challenges uh, due to reduced uh, prefrontal cortex activity. So if you're taking marijuana, what it happens is you get an impact on the prefrontal cortex, so an emotional challenge. Now, that can be from your partner, it can be because you're driving in traffic, it can be something at work, but somebody's kind of challenged you and you kind of go, ah, emotional challenge, you're not going to handle it so well. And uh, I know that there are a couple of surfers here and that was good to hear. Uh, it's also one of my favourite uh, pastimes and if I am teaching over at uni here in the morning, I'll try and get down for a surf before uh, I get to work. 
Uh, I haven't seen you guys out there yet, but I'll look for you now. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the thing is that within that culture, uh, certainly a few years ago, uh, as I was growing up, uh, you know, there was a number of my friends who would actually use uh, marijuana. And, uh, look, apart from recognising, I do really understand why they call it dope, uh, as probably some of you would recognise, it really takes away a lot of the intellectual capacity. But it's also true that these people also tend not to respond very easily, or at least very well, to an emotional challenge. They kind of get fired up. They're almost a little schizophrenic in the way they operate. And there is a connection in the earlier use, the marijuana for schizophrenia, which is poor emotional control, amongst other things. This is one that really fires uh, a few people's um, uh, um, defences. What about caffeine? Surely that's good for you. It's the most widely used drug in the world. Surely that can't be a bad thing. In fact, uh, you know, it's a great taste in the morning. This is actually published recently. This is 2015. This is from Zoo et al. in your imaging. We examined regional heterogeneity, so just regional bits of the brain in the cerebral blood flow, that's CBF, changes following the same amount, that's 200 milligrams of caffeine. So... Uh, you know, a strong, um, strong cup of coffee will be 200 milligrams, mostly around about 120, probably up around that. Uh, so we found that brain regions, including the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, this is actually the part sitting about here. The frontal cortex is the executive of your brain. The dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is the executive of your executive. Okay, so it's the big boss. So regional, we found that regional brain regions, including the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and medial frontal cortex, showed a faster rate of decline. So the blood flow shuts down. Now, I'm looking at the time and I'm realising I haven't got time to really explain why that happens. But it's very easy to understand. Caffeine blocks what we call the adenosine receptors. Adenosine starts to go up. It's a molecule that starts to increase within the, the, around the cells when you're starting to run out of energy. And so, of course, when that goes up, signals to the rest of the body, hey, we need more blood flow here, and so the blood whew, goes into that part of the brain. You block that receptor, and of course the brain goes, everything must be okay here because you've shut off the signal, so the blood stops going there. Does organ, do organs function well when you don't have blood in them? Sit on your leg for a while and feel what a dead leg's like. I mean, it doesn't really function too well. I know if we're out in the surf for too long and my feet start uh, losing all feeling, I don't tend to have quite the same contact with my board. I mean, that's, you definitely don't function well. So these findings indicate that caffeine decreases regional brain activity affecting brain function. And then the other thing here is that caffeine stimulates what's called a stress response. HPA, for those of you who are interested, is just the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And uh, I'll be asking Harry about that later. Um, but it is, that is the stress response. So that is... and so. Caffeine actually stimulates that. It's been known for some time. Your heart rate will go up, etc. Let's have a look at the next one then in terms of stress. Now, all of us, particularly living in a big city like, uh, like Sydney, we get stressed. And this is not going to be a surprise to many, any of us. This is from Anston. Uh, this is Nature Abuse in Neuroscience, 2009. Even quite mild, acute, uncontrollable stress, so something you're just a little bit panicked, can cause a rapid and dramatic loss of prefrontal cognitive abilities. Just shut this bit down. Thus, during stress, the brain's response patterns switch from slow, thoughtful prefrontal cortex regulation to the reflexive and rapid emotional responses. I mean, how many of us know that that's the case? You get stressed. Do people perform well? Are they nice people when they're stressed? 
No, they're not. And so it is something for us to guard against. Lack of sleep, let's have a look, a quick look at that. Tasks requiring the prefrontal cortex are particularly vulnerable to the impact of sleep loss. A single night of sleep deprivation resulted in player flexibility. Now, divergent thinking is just your ability to make good decisions, pulling lots of things together and making a good decision, what we would call lateral thinking or even creative thinking. Uh, what's fascinating, I haven't had it up here, but um, there's some recent papers that have just come out where there's a recent uh, thesis, actually, from a student in the US who thought that caffeine was going to stimulate your creativity. You know, a lot of people take caffeine thinking, I'm more creative, I'm up. And he, that was his, uh, that was his uh, original hypothesis. When he actually finished the study, he found it's exactly the opposite. And he was just testing uni students. Found that you gave them caffeine, and in fact they went the opposite direction. Now, it's one of the things that we wanted to do for a little while, and so we're just getting the methodology up so that we can test it. Nobody else seems interested in looking at negative effects of caffeine. I'm puzzled. After 18 hours without sleep, performance was equivalent to or worse than a blood alcohol concentration of 0.05. Does that make sense? Up to 50% slower uh, for some tests. So I'm just putting some things together here. All of us will have lack of sleep. All of us will get stressed. We do need to kind of balance that, particularly if we want this to function well, which is so necessary not only for our own relationships, but particularly for connection with God. Now, this one is also going to hurt people, and I'm sorry that I'm not making friends today. Um, you did invite me for lunch. You may want to withdraw that. Um, that's okay. Just whisper it to me on my way out, and I'll go, oh, that's okay, I've got other things to do. But saturated fat. This was a study back, done back in 1998. It's been known for a long time. Saturated fat. Now, normally, you should be taking about 25% of your diet intake should be around, should be fats. And only about 10% should be saturated fat. If you're eating this kind of stuff, which is a very easy thing for somebody to eat in a day, isn't it? It's, it's pretty simple. In fact, as a student, I probably would have done that if I'd had the money. Um, but saturated fat, 40% energy intake, resulted in impairment of tasks across multiple brain regions, including the frontal lobes, including attention, learning, and memory. And one of the things that really brought this home to me when I was a graduate student, I needed to go to University of Melbourne to learn a particular technique actually associated with uh, uh, just isolating a little bit of uh, brain tissue from the centre of brain called the hippocampus. And so I'd got there and I was spending a little bit of time in the library to learn about it before I went and, and sort, of, uh, um, sort of observed the experts. And uh, I'd been reading a few papers and I'd feeling hungry so I decided I would go next door, well not very far away where there was a McDonald's, and got myself uh, two fillet of fish. This is quite a while ago. Um, so I did, and I came back, it tasted all right to me, and uh, came back and tried to then engage with the same papers, finish them off, and understand what I was. I couldn't concentrate. And I remember it vividly because I wasn't particularly convicted on health issues at that time. I mean, this is quite a long time ago. And, uh, and what surprised me was it took me at least an hour, in fact, it would have been closer to an hour and a half to two hours, before I felt my brain fog shift and I was actually able to engage with it again instead of having to read the paragraph over and over again to actually get what it had to say. And the reason why I've met, remembered it is because it had such a profound effect and because I was desperate to actually understand what I was trying to do. What about music, the electronic media? Now, I'm not an expert in this area, but I'll let a couple of people speak. This is from uh, the National Journal of Electronics, Computing and Science Engineering, 
And they were just looking at religious rhythmic chant music, what they call the Nasid, which is associated a lot with uh, um, the chanting within uh, in, in Islam. Uh, and they thought this was a good thing. It puts the brain into alpha wave activity. What's interesting is that there's a mystic arm of, uh, of, uh, of Islam which uses not only chanting but also caffeine in order to get them into a mystic state. I thought that was fascinating. Uh, this is from uh, a book, uh, The Enjoyment of Music, by Mark Carlos. He says, Rhythm is the element of the music most closely allied to physical action. Its simpler patterns, when repeated over and over, can have a hypnotic effect. That's been known for quite a long time. Now, what the sad thing is, is that when we're coming into church, do we want to be in a sort of hypnotic... Hypnotic state is actually shutting down the prefrontal cortex, so it's not there. Do you want to be in that state when you're actually worshipping God? God never asked us to be in that state. In fact, he wants us to be away. And yet I can tell you that there's some churches... I live on the northeast, sorry, the northwest, and uh, there is a rather large church not far from us who owns quite a very lucrative chain of, of uh, cafes uh, uh, and sells a lot of caffeine. In fact, as you're moving into their particular services, you can get your caffeine as you come into, just before you come into the church, and you'll get into the church, and then you'll sit down there for, with music, which is very repetitive, over and over and over and over and over and over. And if I kept saying that, you would all go to sleep. Um, <laughs> In fact, some of you are almost asleep already, but my apologies. But the point is that it's not setting you into a state where you are going to be engaged to know who God is through the service. It's putting you into a state where I'm just feeling it. I don't want to be uh, too facetious. The other interesting thing here is that high decibel music has negative impacts on prefrontal cortex activation. What they did here is that they actually had a study where they thought that Okay, we're going to do exercise, prefrontal cortex, and it proved well. I'm going to show it a little bit later on. I'll go a little bit quicker. But then they actually said, okay, well, we, we, we know that exercise is good for prefrontal cortex. Why don't we exercise with headphones and fairly high decibel music going? And what they actually found was that while you got the heart rate up and all the rest of it, they found that it actually reduced prefrontal cortex activity. The reasons behind that uh, still been worked out. What about multimedia? Now, again, this is not an area that I'm an expert in, so I'm going to uh, just quote a Time magazine article from uh, 2015. So this is Time, Time magazine's comment. Our attention spans are getting shorter. In 2000, that's before a lot of the multimedia mobile devices, the average attention span was 12 seconds. That seems pretty short. However, they say now it's 8 seconds. That's shorter than the attention span of the average goldfish, which is 9 seconds. So our ability to concentrate, and you're going, why, isn't that good for my kids to actually be using, you know, the iPad and whatever else? You know, it's been banned from a couple of the elite schools on the North Shore now, simply because what we're doing with that media is we're not actually causing, we're not creating. Remember that it's at a time when the brain is trying to wire, you're trying to mature the prefrontal cortex, and you're not actually challenging it. What you're doing is you're responding in a simple emotional way. Something happens, I respond. Something happens, I respond. Something happens, I respond. And so that gives them a little bit of an emotional high. It's a little bit addictive, but it's actually not causing them to think. Do you get the... So this is why they're actually removing it from some of the schools. So let me just summarise here. So we've got, hopefully, when we wake up in the morning with a good night's sleep, hopefully we've got some prefrontal cortex activity. If it hasn't been a good night's sleep, we're going to lose a little bit of that. 
If we're under stress, anybody who drives in traffic ends up with that, at least I do, then we take some caffeine because we haven't slept well, we feel stressed, so we take some caffeine. On top of that, then, of course, it's morning tea time, we're not feeling good, so we go out and get ourselves you know, another cup of coffee and we get uh, what, some donuts. Typical. In it goes. Then we sort of go, well, look, I'm not really thinking very well, so let me put the headphones in and see if I can feel better. You might actually feel a little better, but unfortunately you're not going to be thinking any better. And depending on the sort of work that you're doing, if your boss doesn't mind paying you for something that you're using no intellectual capacity for, then that's okay. And of course, if you come home in the evening, as many people do, and they want to down, you know, have that decrease, not only will they have high-fat foods, which is also going to make it more difficult for them to sleep, it actually does reduce some of the stress, but at another time, they'll finish off a little bit of alcohol. And of course, alcohol is, it is a depressant. It's a neuroactive depressant, stimulates the GABA receptors. So unfortunately, and then that gets repeated day after day, and do we wonder why our message is not getting out there clearly? What's important is, though, is that while our message might not be necessarily impacting others, we need to make sure that we're on the ball so that we can effectively prosecute what God has given us as a pretty amazing uh, mission. All right, so what strengthens the mind then? And I'll try and do this a little bit quicker. Um, I mentioned exercise before, so this has been known for a while. 2015, uh, this latest one. Vigorous acute aerobic exercise has beneficial effects on the prefrontal cortex, uh, and these effects can last up to two hours after exercise. This is extremely important for students when uh, particularly going through HSC, but certainly through university and any time you've got to sit an exam. Get up, exercise, study when your mind is feeling well. Drink plenty of water, which I don't mention here. Don't take caffeine and don't stay up late. And then you're going to do much better. You'll perform much better and the memory, you'll actually retain it. But if you sort of try and hit the books, stay there all day, keep the caffeine going, your mum brings you in a nice, you know, I don't know, treat of something chocolatey and fatty, none of that is going to be good for you. And unfortunately, you'll sit there a long time and you'll just get more stressed, which will make it even worse. There's an interesting study that was published in 1993 and it was uh, called the Mozart Effect, but according to the first publication, this is 1993 in Nature, the Mozart Effect enhances reasoning skills and solving spatial problems in normal subjects after listening to Mozart. Now, people have tried to challenge this uh, as it's gone on, but it's a pretty robust study. And uh, I think people who have... Uh, and, and it has been verified from a number of different angles. So there are ways in which you can, if you like, stimulate the coordinated function of the mind so it makes it easier uh, to engage in difficult problem solving. The other one is nature. Um, it's been around for a little while, this is 1995, but there are studies that have sort of increased from then. But viewing nature is associated with better frontal lobe uh, activity and particularly performance in these attentional tasks, so when you actually need to do something. So what are you doing in, in, in nature? You're actually somehow, and we don't really know how it works, but you're able to relax. I mean, you've just got, we've got, you know, you get down there and you, you get out on a beautiful morning with... Uh, you know, the surf and the sun, and oh, it's just absolutely gorgeous. And this is a fantastic way to relax. And in fact, uh, you know, if there's any surf still in the afternoon, you may as well go and surf for an hour while the uh, traffic dies down um, and do it in the evening as well. Now, one of my favourite religious authors uh, also makes this comment. She says, There is nothing more calculated to strengthen the intellect than the study of the scriptures. 
No other book is so potent to elevate the thoughts, to give vigour to the faculties as the broad, ennobling truths of the Bible. If God's word were studied as it should be, men would have a breadth of mind, a nobility of character and a stability of purpose rarely seen in these times. You know, following the creator who made all of this, it makes perfect sense. He really knows what our minds need in order to engage effectively. Now, some people will argue, what about meditation? Isn't that helping us to relax? Isn't that going to get us into a state where we'll be able to concentrate even better? Fascinating thing with meditation, which is so extremely popular, and there is no question that meditation will help to reduce, if you like, the sympathetic activation, that stress response. It will actually reduce heart rate. It will actually get that down. However, what's it actually doing to the brain? I like this quote. Vishal Mangalvadi is actually a... Um, He's an Indian philosopher, and uh, this comes from one of the books uh, that he's written. He's written a few, but this is one called uh, The Book That Changed Your World. He says, the truth can only... He says, uh, he says uh, Indian philosophers believe that truth can only be experienced by killing logical thought through meditation. Killing logical thought through meditation. You're actually shutting down the prefrontal cortex. You don't want this bit. Let me give you somebody else. Uh, this is uh, Sadguru. That's what he calls himself. He says, fundamentally, all sadhana... Now, sadhana is beyond just meditation, but it's that whole religious practice which meditation is the foundation of. Fundamentally, all sadhana is aimed at ironing out the logical mind. In other words, you want to kind of get rid of it. So that you become like a piece of mirror. You just reflect everything. You're not actually interpreting it. You're not trying to filter it. So that you become like a piece of mirror. Once you become a piece of mirror, you can reflect anything. So in other words, you're not here engaging with this. And yet, this is a popular thing, in fact, extremely popular. And I make this comment, at no time does God interact with man without first appealing to his intellect. You read through the Bible, this is how he's working through his prefrontal cortex. He never asks man to go into a trance, to shut down his thinking brain in order to communicate with him. I want you to think about that because we've got an extremely strong and powerful movement which is trying to take us the other way. In fact, trying to shut down that prefrontal cortex so that you can just feel. It is not be still and feel that I am God. It is be still and know that I am God. So spending time meditating on God's word is extremely powerful. Isaiah 26.3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Your mind is the one that engages with you there, with God. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Where does all that, that fruit of the Spirit, where does love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness come in? Where's that modulated? It's not emotional. The emotions come on behind it, but it's actually modulated through the frontal lobe. So the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit is working here through the frontal lobe. So we've got that on the left, which can actually take away or shut down prefrontal cortex, and then we've got this on the right. Trusting in God does de uh, decrease our anxiety. I remember, and I'll tell you this story very quickly. I was, at, uh, I was invited to be a speaker at uh, what they call the Australian Disease Management Association, and uh, I was giving a talk on uh, oxidative stress and lifestyle disease, but uh, talk for another time. And uh, I'd finished my talk, and uh, there was a psychologist who was asked to speak after. And uh, she was talking on uh, mindfulness, so meditation and mindfulness. And she gave a good talk, and uh, then we sat down uh, together. She, she was sitting next to me. And uh, as we were coming up to a break, I thought, this is a great opportunity. I would talk to her about this. And I love talking to people about this sort of stuff. I said, 
So meditation is the way in which we can kind of get rid of our stresses and all that sort of stuff. And she'd given an example of, uh, uh, let's just say you were, you were supposed to get a promotion uh, at work that day and you thought that it was all going to happen. You got to work and the promotion, in fact, the boss called you in and said, look, I'm sorry, but uh, I won't be promoting you today. In fact, I'm going to promote somebody else. She said, look, that happens. You just relax and you realize, no, that's okay. You just meditate, that's okay. She gave a couple of other examples like that. And in fact, this is the foundation, in fact, of Buddhism, in fact, that problems are not actually real. Um, so when she sat down, and uh, I spoke with her about this, and I said, look, I said, at what point, uh, you know, when you're popping all these things up on the shelf, at what point are you going to deal with those? And she looked at me, because I said, you know, when you're meditating, you're not actually thinking through the problem, you're just shelving it. And I said to her, I said, you know, at what point? And we had a good discussion. I said, what point? I'm giving you a summary. What point are you actually going to be able to sort of take that and deal with it? Because, you know, you probably should have had the promotion, or at least you think you should have. So, and she said, Ross, she says, you know, you think too much. <laughs> well... That's the point. Uh, I guess, and I guess, and, and that, that was probably the right answer from her perspective because if I had meditated more, then I would not be thinking so much. But trusting in God, you see, God doesn't want us to be stressed. That's why He says, cast all your anxiety on, on Him because He careth for you. I mean, that's, that's the point. And we know within that context, we have a real Savior and we have a real God who is able to help us with real problems. All right, time in nature also decreases anxiety. Um, increasing exercise, so getting up and moving, eating well, of course, sleeping well, meditating on God's Word. And if we keep doing that, of course, it's got to work better. It just must work better. There's another quote <clears throat> also from, uh, uh, from Ellen White, which says, Whatever injures health not only lessens physical vigour, but tends to weaken the mental and moral powers. You know, I guess... This is through inspiration, maybe by observation as well. But it is so obvious, and science, as I've pointed out to you, and I've given you it through science, has recognised this uh, unequivocally. Indulgence in any unhealthful practice makes it more difficult for one to discriminate between right and wrong, and hence more difficult to resist evil. So, and be not conformed to this world, Romans 12.2 says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It doesn't say renewing of your emotions. Your emotions are controlled through your mind. It's renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I pray that God will add his blessing. Father in heaven, Lord, it's a privilege to be able to come to you with all of our cares, our anxieties, and to know that we can look on you in your wonderful face, Father, and that you love us. You gave your son to die for us. You've redeemed us, Father, but you've also given us a job to do here on this earth and we pray that through your Holy Spirit that you would inspire each one of us that we might connect more closely with you that you would help us to be able to make choices that will draw us to you and help to draw other people to you also bless us now as we leave in Christ's name This message was made available by the Wallara Seventh-day Adventist Church. 
For more resources like this, visit wallarachurch.org. That's Wallara, W-O-O-L-L-A-H-R-A, church.org. welcome you to Healthy Living Around the World. I am recording on site in Porto at a youth conference and with me is Marika Peterson. Welcome Marika to the program. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, that's good. It's lovely to meet you here. Look, this program is about health and healthy living. Can you tell us a little bit, first of all, where you're from and what you're doing now? Yes, I'm from Norway, so a northern part of Europe. And at the moment, I'm working in a lifestyle center called Fredheim. And uh, yeah, that's in the middle of the forest in a city called Kongsberg, which is one and a half hour away from Oslo, the capital. And uh, it's a beautiful place and yeah, enjoy working there. Very good. So how long have you been working there? Now it's actually two and a half years that I've been working there. And uh, yeah, I've learned so much since I started working there mm -hmm. uh, about health and about you know, how to meet people where they're at and help them with, um, yeah, motivating them to make changes in their life, especially with lifestyle. So what is your role there? Um, my background is nursing. Uh, one of the typical nurse nursing things that I do is to take blood samples. Uh, we take that the first and the last day and uh, we check like, um, like glucose or like blood sugars mm -hmm. and cholesterol amongst other things. And it's amazing how that drops when the guests are there in just 10 days. Um, because we have like vegan food there. Uh, so one of my roles when it comes to the food is to have cooking demos. Okay. And yes. then we go for walks every day and we have lectures and um, like devotionals or like encouragement um, for the day. So they can you know, think of something deeper than just normal small talk. And we have exercises both inside and outside. and. Yeah, conversations and yeah, coaching, yeah, many different things. Yeah, that's a great variety of things in your yeah. role there. <laughs> Quite a big scope. So that's why I really like it as well. Okay, you like having that diversity of experience yeah. in your everyday working life. That's very nice. So tell me, how have you come to appreciate healthy living and living a healthy lifestyle for yourself personally? Yes, well, I grew up with... Um, with my family, my mom always made vegetarian food. So like, yeah, she was very aware of us kids being healthy. So I've kind of grown up with that. But when I became a student and in my early 20s, I, I learned more about how the health really impacts the life. And uh, yeah, I heard about the China study. I don't know if you... Yes. Yeah, heard about that one. Yeah, by Dr. Colin Campbell. Yes. Yes. So it made me really curious, and uh, so I chose like, yeah, five to six years ago to, um, yeah, to eat like plant-based food, mm. and uh, yeah, it's very interesting how good food you can make and how tasty it is, and how now when I see at the lifestyle center, how it helps people with, you know, depression and you know energy and sleep, and it affects everything in, in your life. Then uh, yeah, just encouraging more and more. So it's been like many steps along the way. 
Wow. So it's, it's been like a, a journey that you've just grown yes. and learned more and, and incorporated more in your life. So what is, what would you say is one of your favorite lifestyle principles that you apply personally in your life? Oh, wow. Um, one of my favorites, that's really hard actually, <laughs> because like at this lifestyle center, we have these eight health keys. Yeah, I can mention them. It's like air, fresh air, and sunshine, and nutrition, mm -hmm. and um, exercise, and rest, and trust. Mm -hmm. You know, trust in relationships and with God. And um, let me see, I have to remember all of them. Water, and uh, temperance. Like mm -hmm. you shouldn't do too much of something, even though it's good in itself, or too little. Yeah. So if I'm going to choose like one of them, or... Is there any one of those that really you've found has impacted your life and experience? I think it must be nutrition, actually. Yeah? Yeah, I think that's the one I'm most passionate about. But they're all important. Yeah, especially yeah, nutrition. Especially nutrition, yeah. Well, from what you were explaining before about how when people come to the center and they go on the diet there and they have all their cholesterol levels drop, yes. that, that shows some of the power of changing your diet and the effect that it has in people's lives. Mm -hmm. So. You're working with that all the time by the sounds of things. <laughs> and I've had, you know, this guest coming and telling me that he changed his lifestyle um, to a plant-based diet and he had angina and he recovered from that. It went away. Mm. So, you know, to actually hear the guest telling that it works. Yeah, that's really encouraging. That is very encouraging. So how has living a healthy lifestyle impacted your spiritual life and your walk with God? So one of the areas where I've been struggling um, is with the sleep, mm -hmm. to get to bed early enough in order to get up early as well. When, when I've really taken that seriously, to go to bed early, mm -hmm. like, you know, around 10 or before would be like ideal. It's so much easier for me to get up in the morning mm -hmm. and I love to, to start the day with God uh -huh. and to be a, like truly awake and yes. concentrated. Just like when when I talk to my friends and family, like I want to to be there, you know, and not be distracted or tired. So it's the same with God. So then I really take take sleep seriously. You know, my conversation with God and my time with Him, the quality time, it's mm. so much better. So um, yeah, that has really impacted my spiritual life. Yeah, uh, so the most I think. Right, okay, so it's had a real practical effect in enhancing the quality of your time with God. And when I read the Bible, I, I, I remember what I read. I, I, yeah, I'm just more concentrated. Oh, that's very good. I mean, quality is, makes a huge difference. Yeah, <laughs> when you wake up tired and bleary-eyed and you're trying to read the Bible and connect with God, it's a lot yes. harder. I know for from experience. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so that's, that's very... Yeah, very powerful effect that it has. Mm -hmm. So obviously you've had experience working with people and also personally applying healthy living principles. Mm -hmm. What would you say is one of the things that you would recommend to people who are wanting to make changes in their life and maybe adopt some healthier lifestyle habits? What things would you recommend for them to think about or do in making those changes? Well, first of all, I, because I often talk with the guests about this because mm. they ask me um, and often it can be overwhelming for them with all the information that they receive and uh, they don't know where to start. So I often tell them start with something um, start with something small 
if you want to replace something, like if that's your goal, then you need to to um, add something else. If they want to quit smoking, they need to um, maybe replace that with something like a smoothie or go for a walk mm. instead of just taking something away. Um, and yeah, replace it with something that they like. Or if they want to actually start doing something, um, for example, exercise, they should do something that they already like. If they don't like running, then don't start with that. You know, <laughs> start like swimming or like yeah, you know, strength or lifting weights or something. Like do something that they're that they already like. And if it comes to like the diet, because it can be overwhelming for people if they like Norwegians, they eat a lot of meat mm. and they have a little bit of vegetable on their plate. So the food they receive at Fredheim is very different. Like mm. a lot of salad, and mm. you know, then they get the the kind of warm meal after the salad, so they're already kind of full. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, if they don't know where to start, I'm just saying, just give yourself time and take one thing at a time. Because uh, if you're gonna change the whole diet in one week, you know, some people can manage, but very few. Because yeah, just give it time. And I share that in my personal experience, going from vegetarian to vegan, I spent a whole year you know, really? just taking it step by step. And I often like, oh, this is too hard. And I went back to, you know, cheese and milk and all of this. So I'm just honest with them saying, you know, give yourself time and be kind to yourself and just do one thing at a time. So this was probably several <laughs> tips. No, but that's, that's, I think that's very practical um, advice for people mm. who are wanting to make changes. Cause it can be a very daunting thing. You know, people want to get to this place, this end goal of, better health but the steps to get there can be huge and um, I think the tips that you've shared today are very very practical and realistic for people to be applying in their lives so thank you so much it's good to have an ideal and to try and reach that but yeah like a ladder that's okay take one step at a time yeah. up and you'll get there eventually <laughs> that's a good a good way to put it I like that we'll remember that yeah. the ladder to health yeah. <laughs> that's very nice well look thank you so much for sharing with us today Marika, on the thank program we've been recording here in Porto in Portugal at a youth conference I've met with uh, Marika Peterson and uh, she is from Norway and she works at a lifestyle center there Thank you for tuning in to Healthy Living Around the World. I'm your host, Casey Butler, and until next time, may God richly bless you. Bye for now. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.